Welcome back to another very special episode of For Fintech's Sake with me, your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. My guest today is Brady Harris, who recently stepped into the CEO role at Dwalla, the payments powerhouse. Dwalla's infrastructure has powered billions of payments for millions of end users since its inception in 2008. Brady and I cover his deep background in payments, how he thinks about joining and leading a company with an existing strong and impressive culture and how not to run it and what the future holds for Dwalla and the payments industry more broadly. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brady Harris. Brady, welcome to For Fintech's Sake, my friend. It is good to have you here today. How you doing? Yeah, Zach, it's great. Thanks for finally having me on. This is awesome. Absolutely, man. I've been looking forward to it. I uh, I was telling Audrey before the episode that it has been about two years since I've been in Des Moines. And back when I was there, I was able to visit Ben and go up and hang out in the CEO's office. And there's been a change of humans sitting in that seat since then. So I'm really excited to meet you. And I'm hoping that I can actually make it up to Des Moines and see you sit in that chair sometime soon. But let's go like pre-Dwalla and start things out with a little bit more the Brady background. So tell me about like your life leading up to business, kind of where are you from, where, you know, what drove you into this world and any kind of like entrepreneurial tendencies or anything that you had as a kid, I'd love to hear about. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good question. My, my life is fairly boring. You know, I grew up for the most part in Utah. So big, uh, big Mormon family. We've got eight kids you know, mom and dad, my dad was in the, uh, the military. So we grew up quite a bit, uh, around the country and then, you know, ended up doing high school back in Utah actually. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, uh, I left, I left the country to Russia for a couple of years right after high school. Uh, I was over in St. Petersburg and, um, you know, when I got back to the States, I knew it was, you know, that the common thing was to go to school and I just didn't feel ready to go to college yet. So how can I start making money? I got married to my high school sweetheart, and uh, we loaded up our Honda Civic with literally everything that we owned. We, we'd been married about two months. I remember the amount. We had about $600 in our bank account. And we moved up to Portland. And we said, let's just go have an adventure, you know, up in Portland. Uh, and so I got into payments at that time, just a commission-only sales rep. It was a younger, kind of smaller company, three, four offices, maybe, uh, maybe 40, 50 employees. And the intent was just to you know, have, uh, have a, a good time for a year or two, just kind of figure out married life and where there was little responsibilities in terms of mortgages and kids. And, you know, we just did a lot of surfing up in Oregon and exploring. And, uh, you know, I really fell in love with payments at that point. So what ended up being just, you know, a, a one or two year plan, I ended up being with that company for the better part of 15 years. And that, that sent me on my payments, uh, kind of payments career that that's now going on 20. Yeah. Before we get into kind of Elliot and your your illustrious love affair with payments, as we'll call it now, since you said that, I want to pull on a couple of threads from those earlier days. So I don't there's not even a thread here, but just it's amazing how many how many Mormon guests I've had and how many Mormon folks I run into in the fintech space. Like it's, it's generally not the thing they open with, but once you build a relationship with them, I'm like, oh my God, like it's possible to 50% or something of fintech or of financial yeah. services is Mormon. I just didn't know it. So it's fascinating. I mean, I'm, 
I meet a lot of Mormons on a regular basis, and I would be fascinated to see if yeah. guests would be able to guess which ones they are, because we've actually had a few over the last like four or five weeks and we don't talk about it. So interesting. Well, yeah. if they're not taking shots and not cussing, that's a good sign. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and if they're naturally energetic, no caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just happy people. Exactly. Yeah. That's a, That's an interesting observation. I, I've got a theory. One of, uh, one of the things when you think about like the culture of different religions or maybe geographics around the country, Utah is like the epicenter of, of all things Mormonism. It's got a really interesting culture. It's very entrepreneurial. That's kind of the pioneer spirit, right? Like the great migration West and, you know, building something out of, uh, you know, out of a desert. So there's very much this entrepreneurial spirit. Hard work is really valued. Innovation is, you know, I think is one of those like really cool characteristics of that culture. And not surprisingly, you know, payments, definitely fintech, if you go one level up and then just tech in general, mm -hmm. it's just blowing up in Utah. There's, um, it's lovingly referred to as Silicon uh, Slopes, you know, obviously the play on Silicon Valley. But I think Utah cranked out like four tech unicorns last year, tons of VC and, you know, big, uh, big investment community. A lot of San Francisco firms are setting up shop in Utah right now. So it's interesting. There, there, it is an epicenter for like innovation, entrepreneurs. Uh, it's just a really cool place that that's my theory anyway, from like a humanity standpoint, maybe why that's happening. It makes sense. It's almost like the uh, if you had to like transpose this whole movement from Silicon Valley to Miami, it's almost like you can figure out who's going to go to Miami and who's going to go to who's going to go to Utah based on. Yeah. A number yeah. of different things, but their ethics is probably one of them in my in my experience. And I know you've seen this and we've talked about it. It's just super interesting, you know, that like you see this decentralization of, yeah. of tech and payments. I mean, what previously was really, you know, focused in places like Seattle and San Francisco and Atlanta. I mean, you're now getting into places like Des Moines, Iowa, you know, or these these mid-tier cities that are just growing like crazy from uh, from a tech uh, and, and kind of a, a business standpoint. So it's a really cool phenomenon, just kind of seeing it become more decentralized like that. It is. Yeah. And more folks like you and, you know, hopefully moving into these cities like Kansas City and Des Moines and turning them into first tier cities. That's the yeah, goal, for right? Sure. That's the goal. So the other thing I wanted to pull on there was your time in Russia. You kind of skated over that as if it wasn't two years of your life in a completely different culture and world. What were you yeah. doing in Russia? What was, what was that yeah. like? Did you learn anything? Ben oh, might've shared a piece of something with me that I want to ask you about. Maybe you did some interrogation while you were there. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of mixed in different parts of my life. Yeah. Oh, okay. Was okay. It was, it was amazing. I was there from uh, 19, 18, 19, right out of high school until 21. It's back to the, the LDS Mormon piece of my life. Gotcha. You know, a lot of, a lot of young men will go on a two year church mission. My high school, for example, I had no less than 200 good buddies that we just all went all over the world, Mongolia yeah. and South America and Russia and the Philippines and France. You don't get to choose where you go. That's chosen for you, but it's an incredible experience, man. You know, I, I was reading a, a recent book. It's not too new. It's uh, I think it's called the Mormon way of business. And they, hmm. they interview like top five really well-known LDS CEOs, you know, like the founder of JetBlue and Dell yep. Computer. And, you know, anyways, these, these types of people. 
And interestingly enough, every single one of them, as they interviewed them, really tried to figure out like, what do these, what do these dudes have in common? Uh, a lot of it comes back to this two year, you know, service mission that they go on that we're, we're normally, you know, you'd be hung over in a frat house somewhere like at age, you know, 1920. Yeah. And, and you're out doing service and teaching people about your, your faith. And it's just it, it, character building, right? Like you're in the middle of Russia as a 19 year old trying to learn the language away from home. And I think those characteristics and like, obviously the way that builds emotional resiliency, all just kinds of really important things that I think can, can uh, benefit you the rest of your life. Hugely beneficial. Like I think of it, at, I think of it daily. Like I still reflect on my time there. Yeah. I mean, you just threw another one at me, Michael Dell. I didn't realize that he was Mormon as well. So apparently yeah, there's yeah. a, the list is longer than I even realized. And I'm at least somewhat paying attention right now, I think. So it's interesting. Yeah. So when you got back from Russia, one of the other things a lot of my Mormon friends do after that is they somehow end up in like almost a door to door sales job. Did you ever go through that experience? Did you do that at any point? No, but you know what? I think I think my closest foray to that was uh, getting into payments. Yeah, you know, quite literally, like door to door sales, making 150 cold calls a day. You know, back in the day, yeah, everyone, your listeners will remember, we were selling the knuckle busters. You know, those carbon copy like slide your credit yeah. card over to make an imprint. That that was what we were selling at that point. Uh, or the old trans 330s, really, really old uh, credit card terminal. So no, you know, a lot of the dudes, uh, you know, in between like their semesters in school, when they get back from their missions, they'll go do pest control cells or alarm cells, you know, and they'll go all over the country. And those guys will go make 30, 40, 50 grand a summer, you know, just because they can kill it. They if you can go to Russia and sell religion, like you can go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The overlap of just the sales knowledge is one of the things that's the most impressive to me. So let's, let's take that forward into your time at Elliott. So you started as account executive and then you moved into basically like different sales roles, right? District, territory, regional vice president. What was that process like, right? So go, just from going to doors, knocking on them and selling everything you were just talking about all the way through managing a sales team, like, what from the early days kind of informed that? What, what was that experience like in general? Man, I'm just, I'm so grateful for that whole time in my life. I, this is not a false modesty type of thing, but it was honestly such a, a right place at right time. Like there were so many stars that aligned that I think put my career and kind of my professional growth on this trajectory where people of equal or greater talent and work ethic they would have been just as successful and probably even more so successful. So I, I just want to preface it that I really consider myself very lucky being in the, in the right company, right time, right industry that was just blowing up. But um, yeah, you know, I was, I was doing sales for about a year, year and a half in the payments world, especially on the credit card side, you can build up a residual, you know, so as you're signing accounts, you're getting a piece of the interchange mm. that your customers process monthly. So I'd start building up a really nice recurring uh, residual. And I found myself, you know, working with some of the newer account executives there in Portland to teach them the ropes. I would just love grabbing people, showing them how to break down bids, you know, how to decipher interchange with Visa and MasterCard. And eventually I was like, man, I'm, I'm doing this like half the workday. I might as well get paid for it. Hmm. So, you know, that led to becoming a, an assistant manager there in that little branch. And then becoming a district manager six months later. And, you know, at that point, the company said, we'd like to expand in Seattle. So my wife and I, you know, we upgraded from a Honda Civic to a small U-Haul with our belongings. And 
you know, we, uh, we moved up to close to downtown Seattle and, um, that was an amazing adventure. You know, professionally I had, I don't know, three or four promotions over the subsequent years, just really came to love the city. I, you know, I was, I was at that time managing offices about maybe 10, 12, 13 offices through the, the Western United States. And I'm like mid twenties, you know, late twenties at this point with a staff of two, 300 people. And so it was one of those things that by no means was I qualified. I didn't have the pedigree. I didn't have the college degree at that time. Right. Like, but it was just a company that was going really fast. Payments was blowing up. And, um, I was just able to go along for that ride. And, and I got some really great experience, you know, that I just continued to build on to, to this day. Some beauty and being in the right place at the right time to get a job that you're not actually qualified for. I think that's most of my life. So yeah. I definitely, I definitely get that. So I kind of buried the lead here a little bit, but yeah, you moved through the sales positions and got a number of, uh, you know, kept moving up that ladder there. But as I said, I buried the lead. You ended up as president and GM. And so before I go to how did that happen, let's actually start with what about the culture at Elliott allowed you or incentivized you to stay for what a total of over 16 years. I mean, that's kind of, kind of unheard of in general since folks have, you know, stopped kind of working at GM for 40 years and retiring in the classical way. Like what, what was it that kept you there? What was it that they structured culturally or incentive wise to make you continuously interested? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. You know, reflecting on that, I, I think a lot of things really matched up with my personality. I love to be able to be in a place where maybe my value and my work is is uh, is recognized, right? So if I get embedded in a really large team or uh, say a college project, you're busting your butt on a you know end of semester uh, paper with five other people. Like I really struggle in those environments versus you know, being front and center and either you win or lose, right? Based off of your your own efforts and your own contributions. And Elliot was very much that way. I mean, there was no hiding how you performed. You were doing well, that was recognized. If you didn't perform, there was no way to obscure those numbers. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it, that they very much created a culture that celebrated people that performed and produced consistently. I think the other thing was, you know, we all have, I think most of us have just this innate desire to continue to grow and to be challenged and to, and to feel like, you know, we're on this path that we are becoming better people personally and professionally. And so, you know, as I would perform at a certain level, you know, after a year, two years of that, that next opportunity would be available to take a region or to take a division or to become, you know, a vice president. And so I think there was this, you know, seven to 10, call it promotions or progressions that I took in my career during that time that I was just continually growing and being stretched and having to to learn something new and to step out of my comfort zone. So it was a really just great blend, you know, kind of that Venn diagram of the industry was great. It was very much a culture that recognized people who were bringing value to the business. And the business just continued to give me give me opportunity after opportunity, the, the perfect storm, so to speak. It's fascinating because I hear, I mean, that all makes sense, right? Like logically that makes sense, but I almost hear a dissonance between the the early stages of 
It's almost like I'm guessing you might have swam or something in high school, right? Because like the other four guys on the basketball court, if one of them drops the ball, like, what are you doing, man? So like you have this very single player. I know that I need to hit X goal. I need it. I know I need to do this. And I kind of don't want anyone else to get in here and mess this up. But as you grow into a leader, you're kind of innately responsible for other people's work, Mm -hmm. right? So how have you kind of like squared that as you've scaled as an executive and as a leader? Yeah, that's it. That, you're a smart dude. And that's, that's a really cool observation you made. Because, uh, you know, interestingly enough, probably the most common uh, sentiment and feeling or, you know, uh, maybe comment that I made to, to my wife as, as we were going through this together is every time I took another step up on that proverbial rung, right, like climbing the corporate ladder, more and more direct reports and more responsibility, it was exhilarating, but it was also really scary because as you pointed out, the further you become from that individual producer position, you in essence are putting your success in the hands of more and more people. And so you go from being able to hit the ball out of the park on your own to then having to coach and mentor and develop and manage and lead people in a way that you need them to hit the ball out of the park for you. And that's a, that's a scary feeling, right? Mm -hmm. Like, to say, listen, I'm going to put my success and my family's well-being in the hands of other people that may or may not, right, step up to their potential or do what what they need to do. But man, it's amazing when you find people that do hit it out of the park and they respond to, you know, your mentorship or you're able to to have a really successful team that you can guide and direct. That's the best feeling in the world because you you in essence are force multiplying, right? You're just taking yourself. And hopefully creating a lot of other people better than you at scale. And that's, that's, that was a really uh, exciting part of leadership. It's something I super enjoy now. Is it almost like a lead by example thing? I mean, I would think that going from territory to regional to vice, like I would imagine there were folks inside of Elliot when you were president, they're like, oh man, he was able to go from this to that. And, you know, not everybody is a career person and going to stay at a company for 16 years to get to that point. But I imagine that you inspired some people with that upward mobility and just by having watched you climb those ranks there, they see that it's possible kind of thing. I mean, I've had those people in my life where I'm like, oh shit, they did that. I can do maybe that minus two or something because they're smarter than me, but that's interesting. You know, it, it gets you thinking about what's possible. I think so. Yeah. That's a nice compliment. And um, yeah, you know, there was definitely that feedback. It's something that I think we tried to really prop up, not just whatever success I had had, but what other people had. I mean, there were so many stories of, you know, the single mom who two years later bought her first house or, you know, one of my very first employees I I, I hired uh, as a branch manager. She was, I think she was bartending in a Mexican restaurant in hmm. the shady Mexican restaurant downtown Seattle. And, you know, fast forward 10 years, she's now running 20 offices and, she's just this amazing polished professional and she just accomplished so much with that opportunity. And so that's something we, I, I think reflecting on like, what did we value? We really valued as a business was all these people that were just in the right place, right time. They worked really hard. The business recognized them. And it was this environment where you can accomplish whatever you want to. And if you're willing to work hard and you have ambition and you have a little bit of talent, like you could just really thrive and succeed. And that's where I go back to, you know, just right place, right time, because there's people who they're maybe in, you know, like no knock on Wells Fargo, but say like a Wells Fargo, right? Tens of thousands of employees that 
no matter how hard you work, it's going to be really difficult to be a standout player. So that's, that's where I just consider myself really lucky, man, that, yeah, I look at, I look at that time in my life and it put me on the fast track. It gave me tons of experience, gave me space to make a lot of mistakes, learn a lot about myself. And that just continued to open doors, you know, to this day for me. It's an inspiring story. I mean, just when we talked about it before, I, I kind of couldn't believe that you had been there that long and that you had kind of jumped onto a couple places after that and been able to make seemingly, you know, quite sizable impact in those outside companies as well. I know so many people that stay somewhere for 16 years, try and go to a specific number, but, you know, stay somewhere for over a decade, try and go somewhere else. And they're like, oh, I'm used to like, you know, we report twice a week, not once a week. We do this, not that. And it's just kind of the unwillingness to kind of flex and change, which kind of takes me to my next question less of a question, more kind of the next stop on the Brady story, Payscape. So will you talk me through kind of how you ended up at Payscape? I'm guessing that, you know, the career you had had to that point probably put you on a headhunters road or a headhunter or two's like LinkedIn top thing, however that's phrased. And what what were they doing? What is Payscape? All that stuff. Yeah, that that was a another great experience. So yeah, you know, that, that takes me, I'm probably, oh man, I was maybe mid- 30s. This is 2017-ish. At Elliott, you know, we had gone through several private equity transactions. So that that was a really cool thing. You know, I was 30 and being able to, to be part of, you know, three, 400 million PE deals. And that that was really cool. And so we just kept growing and growing and growing. We, we had partnered with, um, you know, a pretty big uh, private equity, uh, what I would say is more of an institutional investor out of Canada. And at that point, I think we hit scale. You know, we had tons of employees. We had 30 plus offices all around the country. And I had a little bit of a midlife crisis where I, I found myself at this time. We're back in Utah. I've got 3.5 kids. We built our dream house. 0.5. Yeah. <laughs> one in the oven. The, the, the one didn't have very much potential. So we, we just count him as like 0.5. But um, <laughs> no, you know, and I'm sitting there and I'm like, man, I've been here 15 years. We've really grown this thing. Bureaucracy isn't the word, but running a company at scale is different, right? Than oh, yeah. when you're 40 employees and you're just fighting for survival and you're scrappy and gritty. And I, I just increasingly miss that. And so going through this kind of identity crisis, man, what do I want to do? And where where do I take this 15 years of experience? I'm mid-30s. I've got fresh legs still. This is not a humble brag thing, but it, it was the catalyst. So Glassdoor does this like whatever top CEOs thing, right? Like every year. Yeah. And I in, in 2017, so I got I got recognized as whatever, number three, number four top CEO in the SMB category. That's awesome. That's a big deal. Just to pause there for a second. My old CEO at MBKC was on that list. I think he was like number 13 or something. And we all got shirts that were like the number 13 best boss in the world or something. But that's a big deal. I mean, I remember that having some sizable notoriety. I know you're a humble guy, so I'm sorry to pause here, but still, that's cool. No, I I think so. If I had third high school grade, that means I was like 10 people better than your old boss. If I'm just doing the math. Yeah. I mean, it's (laughs) I'll send him the podcast and I'll let you guys just fight it, fight it out in the street. Your your (laughs) listeners are like this. This dude is a douche. I'm totally. (laughs) I know you're kidding. I know you're kidding. And it's banking, not SMB. I think it's all like the only way they can build those lists in a real way is to separate them by industry. Right. Because it's like best payday loan CEO is still an asshole. You know, like. (laughs) 
honestly, I, I had my friends and family in there voting for me. My kids were great. Like, so it's, I'm, I'm totally kidding about, you know, we got to do a recount then we got to, we got to yeah. recall it. Like it's Florida. It was a stolen, stolen election. Exactly. So yeah, no, you know, that was a big catalyst because it, it was just, you know, we just did another private equity deal that, that award came out. I'm going through this identity crisis. And I, I, as I was reflecting on like, man, what, what do I have to offer people outside of this company? I realized I went through this really unique experience of scaling a company or being part of a scaling company, you know, from whatever, 20, 25 employees when we started to hundreds and hundreds, you know, in excess of 100 million revenue. And what I learned was that is a very, uh, that's a very unique skill set to have somebody that went through or has gone through that entire experience from, if you think of blitz scaling, kind of like fighting for survival into the hockey curve, yeah. the, the hockey stick curve. And, you know, then it, at, at a hundred million plus revenue. And so I started to talk to people kind of like fellow peers and other CEOs and just people in the payment space that I knew. Payscape, which is a really cool fintech out of Atlanta, you know, they were ran by a couple co-CEOs, college buddies that just did an amazing job, built an amazing company, but they felt like they just kind of hit that ceiling in terms of growth. They hadn't done a lot in terms of scaling and trying to standardize the business. You know, they were twisting a lot of knobs and pulling levers. They just didn't really know where to go with the business. They knew they wanted to do some kind of transaction, PE, IPO. And so we start talking, they're like, Hey, you're, you know, you've ran something that is twice as big as we are. You have private equity experience. We're not operators. You know, we'd rather be on the board and work with investors. Do you want to come in and take over the day to day? So, yeah, you know, that was a big decision. We ripped our kids out of junior highs and elementaries and soccer teams and, you know, 4,000 cousins there in Utah. And we, we packed up, we moved to Atlanta and, uh, and we said, we're going to commit to this. We're going to, you know, really try to take what I had learned in that, you know, decade and a half. And, and that led to about a three year stint there in Atlanta with Payscape to where we worked really hard. We eventually did a, a private equity back deal. It was a, a great exit. And uh, they're now off doing really great things. They've, they've merged, you know, and bought five or six companies. We did that uh, right after we did the deal, but yeah, they're just amazing. And it was an amazing experience. And it, it was exactly the kind of place I was hoping to land. What about the those PE transactions do you feel like was kind of your core competence? I guess maybe even a better question is what goes into them, right? Like I have been around enough to, I guess, understand the high level of it. But when they were pulling you over, was it because of your, you've gone through it before, right? But is that a relationship thing in terms of knowing the right folks to call at the right time or knowing the potential acquirers? Is it truly about understanding the spreadsheets? Like, is it a relationship thing, a business model yeah. thing? Like what knowledge did you have that was so key? Uh, I think it's all of it, but I, if I think more so at the core center of all those things, <clears throat> you know, investors, whether it's VCPE, it's a SPAC, it doesn't matter what the vehicle is they want to make money on their money, right? They want to 3X, 5X, 10X their money. And so when when my experience helped me understand really quickly, what exactly do investors assign enterprise value to? Like, Hmm. what do they look for when making an investment? And what are the things that, call it value creation, right? What are the things that an investor or financial sponsor might do in order to increase the value of their investment? That might be 
adding headcount, right? Staffing up. It could be making acquisitions that you bolt on. It could be, you know, running your financials in a way that help you optimize your OPEX, your spend versus revenue ratios. Uh, it could be ways that you diversify, go to market strategies, all these like little knobs that financial sponsors will help you figure out. You twist them and you pull them. And then the idea is you then grow the company in a way that when they sell in three to five years, right, they're going to make multiples on their money. Knowing what investors look for and knowing what those various knobs and levers are, I think was a really great experience and skill set that I had that in the case of Payscape, I could take in, right? And I would sit down with those guys and say, listen, investors are going to put a premium on us being able to scale our go-to-market strategies and to show them our sales processes. Because they want to know if they give us, right, $200 million, can we take that money and replicate what we've done? So just all that that little stuff, right? Like, I think that was highly valued. And everything we did at Payscape was with an eye towards building the business over a long term but especially making it as attractive as we could in a transaction environment. So as we subsequently started to engage with financial you know, sponsors or investors, I knew what they looked for. I knew what they valued. And you know, we ultimately did a double, a double digit EBITDA multiple. And that's a really, that's a rich premium. I think it's because of all those things we did for about two years to get the business ready to then write, put the for sale sign up and to, to go raise money like that. So we, we have a good number of students specifically in MBA programs around the world, actually some folks in the UK, but specifically in the US, a lot of students that listen. And this question may end up depressing the hell out of them, but I'm curious how much of this can you learn in school? I know you don't have an MBA, you have a master's in international affairs and global enterprise, which maybe is somewhat similar, but did you learn any of what you just talked about in school or did all of that come through doing? No. Yeah, I really didn't. And that, listen, if you're getting your MBA, don't drop out because of what I'm about to say, like stay the course because yeah. right, it, that that's valuable. But no, it, it really was just that cliche. You know, I'm 32 years old sitting in a, in a freaking boardroom with 40, 50 people that are all Ivy League, you know, MBAs and people that have, you know, are doing analyst and associate work at, at the huge private equity firms. Yeah. And you just learn on the spot. And so, it's not proprietary. I don't think it's complicated. You just you only have to sit in X number of board meetings and talk to a handful of investors to where you figure out really quick what do they value and what can you as an operator or in as a senior manager, right, bring to the business that will make them want to partner with you. So yeah, just you know, I've gone through, I think, at this point, four private equity transactions. Dwala right now, we're we're in the middle of our series C it's all the same thing. It's just being able to demonstrate value in the business and tell a compelling story, you know, why they can make five to 10 X on their money. Yeah. I mean, maybe the, maybe the piece of advice for the MBAs listening is, you know, don't drop out, but find the way to get into those boardrooms. Even if you just are a fly on the wall, like be around it as much as you can and just watch how it happens. Kind of a thing, just be as close to it as you can. No, for sure. You know, when, when I was a VP, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't interfacing with our private equity firm a whole lot. It was indirectly at that time. But I used to beg the senior executives like, hey, can I see the board decks? Can I listen in on board calls? Can I sit in on a board meeting and just listen to what y'all talk about? Like I was craving that exposure because it's something I wanted to do at some point. So to your comment, like 
making sure you flex on any ambition you have, look for opportunities, be willing to bust your butt. Like these are all things that our grandparents told us, but they're, they're so applicable today. They, they really are. Yeah. So you mentioned Douala. Let's go there as I want to spend a good portion of the time talking about that. Let's start with, so I mentioned I've had been on the show before, but it was actually like a first season episode where he had the ex CTO from the Obama campaign on. And we just talked about a whole bunch of randomness and none of it had to do with Douala. So I think folks generally know what Douala is, but maybe let's start there. What is Douala before we get into kind of what the future of it holds? Yeah, it's a super cool company. They pivoted their their core product just not too long ago, a few years ago. And so we, we struggled to say how long has Douala been in existence? It, it originally was a P2P product. And what they learned was that businesses, developers within businesses were looking to access uh, the ACH payment infrastructure, primarily with the feds, and to access those rails. And in order to do that, it took you know, 6, 9, 12 months of pretty intense development work to integrate those payment technologies or those payment capabilities into whatever your platform is, an app, a software, right? Whatever your, your, your platform is for your clients. And so what Ben and team did is they, they said, listen, there's this really sophisticated infrastructure for all things ACH. Let's figure out how to give businesses access to all of that through a really simple API, and so they, they took, you know, ACH as the beachhead, as that primary payment modality. And they said, let's take ACH and just build out all this really cool technology on the peripheral of ACH. Things that banks can't do or things that if a business wanted to build it themselves would take millions of dollars, you know, and a couple of years to build out. And let's package it up in a way that they can download a couple lines of code integrate our API in a white labeled environment, they now unlock the full spectrum of anything that anyone would ever want to do with ACH. So that's that's at the heart of, uh, of Dwalla. Uh, we now process, I think this year we'll do probably 25 billion in gross payment volume. We added wow. a million and a half new net users last quarter. You know, quarter over quarter growth is 25, 30% right now for client growth. I mean, the thing is just doing really, really well. And at the heart of it is just taking, you know, a really complicated payment modality like ACH, giving businesses a way to integrate that, that payment technology really quickly in really simplified ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I see Dwala as one of the the OGs, one of the originators of this banking as a service space, right? I think there's this or embedded finance or, you know, pick your buzzword. But I think yeah. ben, ben and team were thinking about that so long before so long before anyone was trying to repackage it and do the rebundling and the the hotness that we see today with, you know, the next like $30 million round coming every other day kind of a thing. Yeah. I'm curious specifically about maybe like one or two use cases just so people can get their head wrapped around it. I think, you know, we have regulators listening. We have a number of entrepreneurs, I think, that will totally understand and may already be using Dwalla. I had a, one of our guests, I think it was last week um, that we actually published the episode, but was Rob Petrozo, who's the C chief product officer at Rally Road. And he shouted out to you guys as kind of one of the one of the main partners that helped them get up and moving really fast. Is there like a specific use case that you just love to talk about with Dwala or something that can kind of like explain Dwala to a second grader, maybe? Yeah, there man, we have so many of them. I'm trying to think of, of a recent one. 
yeah, you know, I, I'm trying to think of, I'd be cool to use their name. Some of them are, are launching kind of new technologies or they're trying to, they're trying to blindside their competition. So I'll, I'll stay abstract on the actual names. Sure. Yeah. But you know, one, one of the, the company strategies is to expand with our, our clients, both new and existing clients. So our, one of our distribution strategies that really separate us from places like Stripe or Square or Marketa. And I'm friends with all of those executive teams, so I'm not knocking on them. But but one of the things that really help us, uh, you know, compete in the marketplace, and I think attract a really unique type of type of customer, is our ability to scale or flex to the unique business needs that our clients have. Because every single client that comes to us, they have a different workflow requirement, how they want the payments to be embedded in their technology, and so we have places like. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, right, literally came to us. Or we have, we're, we're about to announce in the next few weeks, a really large partnership with a global fintech that moved $9 trillion in payment volume last year. Whoa. They came, yeah, it's, it's amazing. They came to us in Q4 and said, hey, where is RTP, <clears throat> real-time payments, on your uh, roadmap? Their thesis was that RTP is going to become the primary payment modality to include credit cards over the next five to seven years. And they said, we want to be the, the competition to the marketplace. We want first mover advantage. We hear that you, Dwala, have a lot of the plumbing built out for a, an RTP modality. Could we partner with you and then under a white label agreement, go resell that in the domestic U.S.? Hmm. So. That's something, for example, we recently did is, you know, we have now built and we're about to launch RTP, instant payments, real-time payments, uh, in partnership with this global fintech that they then are, are using to embed with all their, their customers and clients. So I think the unique use cases in, in a really low-code, almost no-code environment, developers can take our technology, our API, they integrate it. Uh, into their their platform or their their application, they can send and receive money. They can do all kinds of really robust reporting. We have things like mass disbursements, push to debit, balance account numbers. Just all these really cool, unique technologies complement or supplement ACH as the core tech. But then back to the scalability and kind of programmable piece. What we do really well is. We'll have people trying to integrate with a Square or a Stripe, and they say, hey, like we can't get their code to flex to our business case. That might be that they're trying to, in the gig economy, build a product that can pay contractors directly, and contractors can, in turn, do mass disbursements to their contractors or to their customers. Our technology is really programmable. So we can take our core tech and, in partnering with their developers, figure out how to fill these very like nuanced niche solutions that they need in a payments product. So we can sell our new technology right to new and existing customers. They can use it how it's currently built, or we can take that initial implementation and then start flexing our technology to the really unique business cases that they might have. That's where we super shine. We do it faster, more cost-effective than squares and stripes. And I think that's because we have focused on ACH as our beachhead, right? Versus building out this entire payment ecosystem uh, that so many of our competitors are trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I really admire the focus, right? It's like this this brand. I don't even know really the 
right term for it, but I guess just like brand affinity or like brand connection, right? When someone says the term ACH and I'm on a call with an early stage founder and they want to they want to do a thing, you know, whatever that thing is, if it's very ACH specific, I always think Dwala, right? And granted, I'm friends with Ben, like there's reasons that I always think of Dwala, but there's 75 other people I'm friends with that I could send that intro to. But because you all focus so much on this specific thing and you have a focus, and I know you can work with early stage, right? With like, you know, I started this company yesterday. It's still not even incorporated correctly and I need to incorporate it correctly. And then I'll go work with Dwala. So I love the fact that you've focused to this way and the fact that you're growing based on the focus with like small little iterations around the periphery, which kind of to your point, RTP, I wasn't planning to ask you this, but now that you mentioned it, I think you sit in a really kind of unique position, maybe to have an opinion about it. What do you think the future of real-time payments is? Do you think it's going to be something that the private industry is really going to lead? Do you think Fed now is actually going to be a thing sometime within the next decade? Like, what do you think is going to happen there? You know, we still work with Fed now a lot. We've sat on a couple of their, their instant payment task forces and we consult with them and they consult with us on a pretty regular basis not naming this global fintech. I wish I could say the name just a couple more weeks and then we'll be pushing it out. But one of the things that they did is they kind of validated the marketplace. The, the purview they have into payments is massive, right? When you're moving 9 trillion in money, yeah. Yeah. you just, you, you've got all kinds of access to data and trends. Yeah. And one of our business, what's a plural form of thesis? One of our business uh, theses. theses? Yeah. Theses? <laughs> it sounds a lot like feces. So make sure you pronounce correctly. <laughs> like, what are you guys talking about? Yeah. So what, one of our like business theses uh, was that instant payments, whether that was an RTP modality fed now or through the clearinghouse is going to increasingly, increasingly cannibalize both the, the credit card side of the business, right? The Visa MasterCard rails and ACH as a, as a legacy tech. And the reason for that is, you know, one of the disadvantages of ACH versus the credit card rails was was historically um, the ability to instantaneously approve or authorize, right, the transaction to check balances and to, to ensure funds are there and then to initiate a transfer. And then it was also deposit time. How long does it take to move an ACH, you know, transaction? It's crazy that in today's day and age, I could go withdraw money from my ATM, put it in an envelope, drive to the other side of town to deposit in another bank branch and do that faster than if I get online and initiate right an electronic and ACH payment between banks. Yeah. So, you know, what this global fintech really validated for us and, and our original theory was that RTP instant payments, it solves all the pain points that both ACH and the credit card rails currently has. And it combines the best of both of them into one modality. And, and you know, their theory, and they, they released these findings to us, is that RTP or instant payments, and I share this sentiment, is going to comprise the majority of digital transactions over the next five plus years. Hmm. And that's not to say that RTP, right, is like that beachhead modality won't continue to evolve and you know, morph into new and exciting modalities. But we think it's going to cannibalize and take a lot of the payment volume away from these other rails. So what we're excited about is we really made room on our roadmap. We threw a lot of our best developers and engineers and resources at building out a very robust RTP product 
that not only can be sold in a direct sales environment, right, on a per client basis that's integrating with Walla, but we also have built it in a way that other fintechs or other tech companies can take our technology and either white label it, or it can be a seamless reseller environment, or they can copy our tech and use it to complement their own tech stack. So that kind of strategic partnership, one to many as a distribution channel with RTP is, is another really interesting angle that we think is going to, to be a huge accelerant, you know, to our business these next couple of years. Yeah, it's obvious now after listening to you talk that it's kind of a disrupting yourself moment. Like it's one of those if yeah. you if you don't do it, it's almost an existential threat idea that you could just keep doing ACH in perpetuity and not have to. Again, it's obvious now after you've stated it. Yeah. But yeah, that would be a it would almost be like a death nail if you didn't go that direction, it seems like. Or at least in like the next five to 10 years. Yeah, you know, and we're stoked for it. Well, one of the ways we we built out this RTP tech is. Our customers, in, literally in a drop-down fashion, can choose which payment modality they want to move their funds with. Mm. If that same day or next day or just classical ACH, switch to a push-to-debit transaction, run it over the RTP rails. Like We have all of that built out, and so they can toggle and switch and choose, like, how do I want to move money? And so that that's the really unique thing is we've gone and sourced all of the FI, the financial institution partnerships. We've integrated with all of our banking sponsors who have certain elements of technical capabilities we need to really bring these modalities to marketplace. And we've done all the work, right? So in essence, we've we've aggregated all the technology, we've we've built it, we've brought it together, we have simplified it in really easy API, and then we we couple it with our core tech. And you push that out over like some really cool distribution channels. And that's a, that's a really compelling story. So yeah, we're stoked. We think we're onto something good. And as we even have very casually engaged with the marketplace for RTP, both with current customers and clients and with non-customers for pilot opportunities, like we have a wait list right now of businesses wanting to get those RTP capabilities. So we, we feel really validated that we're onto something good here. Yeah. I mean, people are dying for it. It seems like, I mean, everybody knows it's coming and the faster that we can get the first movers are going to have an advantage. So it makes a lot of sense. One of the things I wanted to ask you before I kind of move into my, my finishing questions here is I was really fascinated during our kind of introductory call and also, you know, talking to Ben, there's always this sense of new CEOs coming in and it's, you know, it's kind of like an organ transplant, right? You're a, you're a kidney getting added to a body that's already up and moving and how you go about ebbing and flowing the culture or like establishing expectations so that the body doesn't kind of reject that foreign entity. What strategies did you use to come in? What, you know, you kind of talked, I think a little bit about a blueprint last time we talked, how did you figure that out? What strategies are there? And like, maybe, you know, for other folks that are kind of potentially moving in that direction, what could they learn from your learnings? That's a great analogy, by the way, you can have like a liver failure and you're a thriving, healthy liver that's there to save the patient's body, right. but the body can still reject it, right? Yeah. If, if not done the right way. I've experienced that and it's, that's not fun. Uh, not not the transplant, but like using that metaphorically, right? In a business right. setting. That's a really good question. You know, one thing I've learned throughout the years and, and we try to be really sensitive to with Dwala and Dwala's unique culture is I didn't want to come in autocratically. Listen, our median age at Dwala is I think 25 years old. So, 
you know, our demographic is young, they're tech savvy, they value transparency, like all things. I don't even think that's millennials that Gen Z, if you're 25. I think that would be, you'd still be a millennial at that point, but you're like right on okay. the cusp. Yeah. I think it's, it'd be right in that, that weird area yeah. between, I know what TikTok is, but I don't quite know how to use it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's real. It's well said. Yeah. You know, so what's interesting about Dwalla is you have a really unique demographic. They super value transparency. I think the American worker in general, right, values it. But you look at these certain like characteristics of, of different generations. One thing that, you know, these, you know, these kind of call it like 25 to 34 age ranges, and I'm right outside that, is the ability to have a voice or to feel engaged with the business by being able to make business decisions, by feeling empowered, by being provided autonomy, right? Like yep. you throw all that in a blender and, and blend it up and drink it. Yep. And so the danger is when you come in, especially as a foreign body, a foreign entity and say, I'm the new CEO. This is the way we're going to do things. Even if they're the right things, that can trigger, right? That like body's response to rejecting whatever it is you're trying to bring to the business. And so one of the things I was really mindful of is I was convinced within days of arriving at Dwalla, whatever the business strategies were, whatever the answers were that the business needed to really accelerate its growth, they already had the answers. They knew their business better than I knew it. Hmm. And so my job became less about bringing the answers or injecting a playbook and more so organizing and rallying the collective genius, right, of of the Dwalla body and organizing it in a way that we could extract the solutions that we need and, and figure out what are the answers that we already have, but we can organize it and we can prioritize and we can hold ourselves accountable to all the execution that's going to be necessary to, to putting those things in motion. So we went through, we, we refer to it as a value creation planning process, BCP for the MBAs out there. It's just a, uh, it's just a SWOT analysis of the business. We, from a framework standpoint, we stood up task forces. So we said, okay, like go to market. That's a super important component of the, of the business. Let's set up a task force to just go to market or product market strategy. That is like a load bearing wall in the business. We like, we got to pay attention to that. Let's set up a task force of Dwalla employees. And it was entirely voluntary. It was voluntary. So we went to the business and said, hey, who is passionate about go-to-market? Who wants to be part of a task force that's focused on operational efficiencies? And so we would have a developer, right? A dude who's coding every single day. Like, yeah, I'm really fascinated by our go-to-market strategy. I'd like to volunteer to be part of that group. And then we had the alpha salesperson who's like, oh, I really love efficiency stuff. And I feel like we're bogged down operationally. I'll go be part of that task force. So we had this cross-functional representation across the business on seven different task forces. And then we guided them from a mentorship standpoint through weekly standups and dedicated Slack channels through a, a process where over 90 days, they ultimately extracted from the business all of the really critical answers that we needed to, to solve for and then we figured out how to translate that into things like annual and quarterly goals, you know, business initiatives, things that got put on our roadmap. We identified what were the core KPIs or metrics that we need to track, right, to, to measure our success against the, the various task force recommendations. And that ultimately 
came what we now call our growth blueprint, right? It's just this output from VCP driven from a bottoms up approach that in essence became the collective ownership of all Dwalla employees in what we were going to do and how we were going to grow Dwalla together. And the response was amazing. I mean, people put their heart into the work. The answers and the recommendations were just short of genius. They just, they nailed it. But the cool thing is they now own it, right? It's not Brady Harris's plan. Like this is their plan. So I speak in terms of this is your growth plans. Like these are the things that you all have decided as a business. And I think that's the prominent characteristic of the business today. An incredible level of buy-in. People are vested in our success because they were ultimately the authors, right, of the book that we're reading right now. Like yeah. the Dwalla story, you know. So that was just the general framework. I really loved it. You know, it just it was a perfect opportunity for people that were hungry for growth. They had the answers. They wanted their voices to be heard. And we just had to assemble it in a way that we could, um, you know, focus our talents and our resources in, in the right way. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of universal lessons there, I think, in a lot of ways. Right. Not just as a CEO coming in and saying, OK, I'm going into a company that's established. They got to you know, take this next step. So the, the assumed knowledge of the organization is it requires some humility and some listening to like just even get to that point of that yeah. assumptive, assumptive knowledge, I guess, which is a weird phrase. But even for employees, I would think, you know, somebody coming in in a director role or in a head role or whatever, just coming in and, you know, listening and understanding the status quo before trying to, you know, I, I've had folks come into organizations I've been at before they get hired at my level above me, whatever. And then they rehash, a, you know, a strategy that we had three months ago that we already figured out didn't work. Right. Instead of asking, hey, have you tried this? They suggest, you know, well, in my seven hours of being here, we should do this, <laughs> this, this and this. And we need to yeah. do it yesterday. And everybody's just like, OK, well, we officially hate you because we did <laughs> yeah. this. Right. Like this is this, you, you just go home and like, please get off slack and like just listen for a couple of weeks and then we can have this conversation. So oh, man. I think there's yeah, something man. to be learned there across the board, but I know we're coming up on time. So this is kind of culminating in a good way, I think, because we've talked about the awesomeness of Dwalla, the focus, what you all do and kind of what the future holds and the culture that you're building there. So the last one is a little bit of a, well, more than a little bit, it's a total softball. And it is just what can our listeners do to help you? Are you hiring? Are you looking for introductions in any specific area? Where can folks find that information? Mm, I appreciate the alley oop. I'm going to dunk it. Dunk so, it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, I appreciate you asking that question. We are hiring. We've got pretty robust hiring goals and plans for this year. Dwalla.com, I think, is pretty robust. It's got a lot of information about the product offering itself, our company culture, about our growth plans, and you know the type of people that can help us execute against those plans. Yeah, I would say just, I would love to talk to anyone, stay close to the business, check us out. I've got a LinkedIn profile. It's my only social media I have. So I've got like no face pages or tweeters and stuff like that. Uh, but <laughs> uh, yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd, I'd love to uh, to have relationships with your readers and uh, would love to bring value any, any way that I can. So yeah, I super appreciate the time and you being an ally to the business. We appreciate the relationship, definitely. 
Absolutely. Absolutely, Brady. This has been a blast. One last question, just because of the the world that we're living in today. Are those roles open to remote? Do they need to move to Des Moines? How do you think about that stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. We are, like most, we're really embracing the remote first culture. Where previously, you know, we were really trying to target Des Moines-based employees. I think five of our last six uh, new hires in the last month or two are from places like California, Oregon, the East Coast, some Kansas City people. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we we love diversity. We love people coming to us from different places. If you're in Hawaii right now, listening to this on the beach, hit us up. We'd we'd love to have you. Yeah. In Iowa as well. If you're in Iowa, like we, we'd love to talk to you as yeah. well. So you just want an excuse to go to Hawaii, but it's a good answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right, yeah. Brady. Well, I'll put all this in the show notes. I'll make sure to link to your LinkedIn, link to the website, link to the jobs page, and get you guys a little bit of traffic. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Brady Harris. I've included pertinent links to find Brady and learn more about Dwala in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all those other things that I'm supposed to remind you to do on your favorite podcast app. And if you want our weekly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and go for a walk. The sun's out. At least where I am. Anyways, go walk. You earned it.